Hello and welcome to this episode of The Giant Pod. This week we are talking to Anita Collier. She is the Mayor of Froome currently at the time of this recording. I am her Deputy Mayor, if you didn't already know. Uh, So it's a bit of a special one really because we get to explore that dynamic. We get to talk about our roles. She gives me a little advice for, you know, next year if I do become the mayor. We talk about growing up in a small town. We talk about getting married and moving to London in the swinging 60s. We talk about working for ad agencies. We talk about work um, living in posh areas of, of London. We talk about uh, heartbreak. We talk about travel. We talk about being a socialite in many ways. Uh, we talk about going to Russia. We talk about... Um, immersing yourself in a country for three months and not knowing the language we talk about our philosophies on trust and trusting people we talk about so many amazing incredible things talk about fair housing we talk about fostering children bringing children up we talk about bringing coaches of 100 women away on holidays to go and get drunk (laughs) we talk about uh, being the mayor in a pandemic we talk about so many things it was such a great chat Uh, And I really hope you'll find this story inspiring because I've definitely found a lot of inspiration uh, from it. And uh, yeah, here it is. Anita Collier, the Mayor of Froome. Enjoy. thousand tracks on there. Jesus. Something like that. I got 30, over 30 days of continuous Grateful Dead alone. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I and love I that. absolutely love it. <laughs> Do you I, like the Grateful Dead then? I, I love the Grateful Dead. <laughs> I love it. So yeah, here we are. Yeah. It's been a long time coming. Yeah, I've been looking forward to it. Yeah. Um, we're in your office, mm-hmm. which is very nice. I love this um, this jigsaw here that you've got going on. Oh, yeah, this is M.C. Escher. Right. So Steve's a great fan of M.C. Escher. So we've got quite a few of his prints around the house, yeah. It's bloody lovely, bloody yeah. lovely. So, yeah, so I'm your deputy mayor. As you are? listeners of the pod uh, may know I'm a deputy mayor of Froome, and you are the mayor of Froome. So we're talking yes. to the big boss today. <laughs> uh, and uh, I, luckily, I haven't had a bollocking from you yet. Oh, <laughs> I would never do that. <laughs> Um, so, uh, so how do you how do you feel how do you feel your year has been as, as mayor? Well, I, it, obviously it's been the most extraordinary year because of lockdown. Um, I think the, when I actually had the chain handed over to me by the previous mayor, I had to go up and socially distance and have it passed over at arm's length. Yeah. I mean, it was all really weird, yeah. quite surreal. But of course, in those days, that was what early May. Yeah, we thought maybe a couple of weeks and it would all be over. And I had so many plans to do things as the mayor. I was going to have parties in the park. I was going to have street parties all over the town. And I was going to attend everyone throughout the year. (laughs) I was even going to have a mayor's ball. I mean, everything was going to be about social events because that's my bag. I mean, I just love social events. So I had all these wonderful plans. And then, of course, it just turned upside down. So I haven't been able to do any of that. But it's been... Brilliant. I wouldn't have had it any other way. And you know what's quite unreal 
is that I've been able to make this my own. Yeah. I've been able to take a totally different path from any other mayor. Yeah. So there's very little in the way of ribbon cutting. There's very little in the way of um, going to concerts much. as It was lovely to go to these prize givings and concerts. Very little of that. So I had to think of another way to make myself visible in the town. So one of the ways to do that was, particularly when businesses were struggling, was to do a walkabout. Yeah. So I set up my weekly walkabout and decided to call in on as many businesses as I could visit to say, hello, how are you doing? How are you finding things? What's the worst thing for you? How can we help? Do you know the support out there? All that sort of stuff. Um, and it's become quite a tradition now. And I think people actually look forward to it. Yeah. It's been fun. You've created work for me. Have I? For next year. So <laughs> should I be handed the big chains next year? Uh, I think I'm going to get a lot of people going, you haven't come to my shop. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it was nice to be able to do that because I don't think it's been a common occurrence for most mayors, really, because there are so many other things to do. Yeah. And that's the bottom line. But I did have one lady who said to me, do you know, I've run a shopping room for 14 years. I've never seen a mayor before. Right. So, yeah, <laughs> things like that have been lovely. I'm going to um, take note of that. <laughs> yeah. I'll send you to the shop. I might have to do a monthly one rather than a weekly yes. one. But it's, it definitely oh. feels like a good thing to do. And by the time you get there, of course, you'll be cutting ribbons and attending concerts and prize giving <laughs> like no tomorrow. So. I wonder if they have to get extra big scissors because, uh, you know, the extra, extra big, big scissors for normal people yeah. will look like normal scissors to me. You wouldn't be able to get your fingers through, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I, I, maybe I'd, I'd like to do one with a chainsaw. That would be a good PR oh stunt, wouldn't it? <laughs> just you, fire up it a chainsaw. It should be around the children, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> It'd probably end up being a hedge strimmer, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would. A hot fuzz. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, it's, it's a bit more like the thick of it, isn't it? Like, as for a chainsaw, this is a hedge strimmer. <laughs> <laughs> it would look right in your hands, though, yeah. wouldn't it? Hey? Oh, giant. Oh, dear. So, yes, yeah, so you're the mayor of Froome mm. uh, in an independent town council, mm. which is a great adventure, obviously, with the COVID this uh, this yeah, year. Yeah. And I think when this airs, when, when this is out, is it potentially this will be in 2021. So we're still going to be feeling the effects of COVID. Oh, for sure. For I think while. it's going to go on for a while yet. Um, this is just the latest uh, adventure mm. in um, the, the storied book of Anita Collier's mm. life. So I'm, I wonder if you could... I just don't know where to... I guess we have to begin... Go back to the beginning with you. Were you born here? No, 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 no. Um, I was actually born in Exeter. Yeah. <clears throat> born and raised in Exeter, so I went to school there. And we came to Froome uh, in 19, January 1964 when my father was headhunted. He was an engineer. Right. And he was headhunted to come to work at Singer's um, to run the machine shop there. Right. So, uh, in fact, he was offered two jobs, one in Liverpool and one in Froome. <laughs> My mother was so distraught that he chose Froome because it looked nothing like the big city that we'd come from in Exeter. Right. Um, and I often think now, if, he, if he'd taken that job in Liverpool, that would have been around the time that the Beatles were operating at the cabin. Can you imagine? Yes, yeah, I would have been full of that, yeah. Um, but as it happens, I don't have a Liverpool accent now. We came to Froome um, uh, and then... I took my A-levels then because I'd technically not quite finished school. So I went to Froome Tech, as it was, in Park Road, um, the old Froome Tech, and took my A-levels there. I did uh, A-level English, English Lit and uh, Economic History. And I met my, um, my first husband there. We were doing our A-levels together. 
So I had four years here, took my A-levels, got a job. And of course, the job that everybody thinks you should go into if you've had a reasonable education is banking. That's where we all start, isn't it? Yeah. So I was pushed into banking. I worked at Lloyd's. Pushed in into? Well, not pushed. <laughs> You're it going. Was, <laughs> it was very much like, this is the respectable job, you know, get a good pension, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah. you know, lucky girl. So off I went to Lloyd's Bank. And actually, I loved it. It was great. It was a farmer's bank. So we, had, we dealt with nearly all the farmers around the area. Um, Lovely crowd of people I worked with throughout the early 60s. Uh, and then when we got married, which was in 1968, I moved to London the day I got married and spent 10 years there having a wonderful time. I got a, um, a transfer to a job in banking yeah. at Paddington Station, and I absolutely hated it. Ah, I, I was you so loved it. No, I was there for about three or four months, and all I did was change travellers' checks and foreign money because it was such a transient society at the station right. there, um, and I got so cheesed off with it. And my husband, who worked in Fleet Street, he was in advertising, said, you know, leave it, come, and come into advertising, you'll love it. Mm. And so I did. I got myself a job, which was wonderful, told the bank manager I was leaving, and he, he really gave me the third degree. Really? <laughs> Wagged his fingers. Oh, my dear girl, you, you know, you're, you're moving into a corrupt society. There'll be no pension, <laughs> nothing solid in advertising, my girl. Right. That sort of chat. So anyway, I left, um, and I actually I had my interview with one of L London's oldest newspapers, which was the Illustrated London News. Right. And... I shall never forget the interview because I was interviewed by a guy called Paul Buck, who was the advertising director at the time. And he called me in and said, um, what's your name? So I said, it's Anisha Collier. Anisha May, as I was then. And uh, he said, and where do you live? And I said, I live in Dolphin Square, which, of course, was quite an elite place to live in. Oh, really? I live in Dolphin Square. Oh, can you start on Monday? <laughs> <laughs> You just need to name drop your absolutely, road. Absolutely, absolutely. These are my ends. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I start, I kicked off in advertising and I worked in magazines, ending up really working for IPC magazines, which is the big woman, woman's weekly, all of that lot, for 10 years. Had an absolute dream all the way through. Brilliant. Wildlife. So run me through, what what was your day-to-day -day life be in, in the advertising? So you're in advertising. Yeah. In London. Yeah. You're living in, what was it, Dolphin, Dolphin Square? Dolphin Square. What is, so what's so special about Dolphin Square? How did you end up there? Is it because you were earning the big, the big bucks? No, no, no. Or was no, it no, an no, up-and-coming place? It was very cheap. Right. This is the weird thing. It was almost like a housing association thing. It was the biggest block of flats in Europe post-war, initially. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of the ministers from Parliament yeah. had their little pied à terres in Dolphin Square. What does this mean? This little little hideaway for, for to somewhere, so, somewhere to hide their mistress, really. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Princess Anne was reported to have had a flat there. So it was quite a, quite a smart place to live, but you couldn't buy a flat there. Um, you had to come in through the back door right. by, by interview. Okay. And you could only get a flat if you went to the right school and you had the right background. Really? And luckily, my husband went to a school that they accepted, and so we got in. But once you were in, I mean, it was a pittance. It was very, very cheap. But a cracking place to live, not far from Parliament Square. So it was all very easy. I taxied everywhere at night for my social life because yeah. it was so close. Um, but an average day for me, I guess, would be uh, going into work at 9.30, which is the time we, we started, uh, 
you'd be making a few phone calls, etc., doing a bit of research, reading up on who your clients were, because I had huge budgets I had to find. Um, and come about 11 o'clock, you'd start to think about lunch, <laughs> because you'd probably be meeting somebody for a, a meeting before lunch. Yeah. So you say, well, we'll meet at 11.30 and have a chat about business, and then we can relax over a nice lunch. <laughs> and lunch, lunch in those days was three hours. Oh, really? really was three. And believe it or not, you had, it was expected of you that you'd have three lunches at least every week in your diary. Right. And if you didn't, your manager would not want to know why. It meant you weren't doing your job properly. If right. you weren't whining and dining all these guys from the advertising agencies and what have you. Oh, this is so you. Oh, it was wonderful. I loved it. Can you imagine? Oh. And, I mean, I can tell you some stories about that. I remember once going for an interview with a guy um, to work for a magazine, and he said, look, can we, can, can we meet for lunch and, and we'll talk about your interview? So I gaily went along to a wine bar. We had a couple of bottles of wine, a bit of bread and cheese, as you do. And uh, he said, well, you know, this is very interesting, but I think we should continue this. I know a little drinking club, afternoon drinking club. Would you like to come along? So I said, oh, of course. <laughs> Absolutely. I remember getting up the next morning. I have no idea what time I arrived home. <laughs> and I remember thinking, oh, my God, I don't know if I got the job. I don't know. What, what am I going to do? <laughs> So I, so I rang the guy and I said, it was a chap called David Thomas. And I said, David, I'm, I'm highly embarrassed and I'm so sorry. I know I met you yesterday for an interview and I'm ashamed to say, I had a lovely time, but I'm ashamed to say I can't remember if you offered me a job. And he said, thank God you've rung because I can't remember either, but the job's yours. <laughs> That's amazing. So they were great times. Honestly, they were great times. And, and one of the girls I worked with in one office, absolute alcoholic, and, and this right. was quite common then. And uh, about 10 o'clock, you know, she'd come in with terrible shakes like this. Right. And about 10 o'clock, she'd give me the wink, and I'd have to say to somebody in the house, just go to the photocopier. And I'd wait outside, and she'd come out. Yeah. And we both go to the pub, which was literally next door. And I had to order her a large gin and tonic and feed it to her because she couldn't hold the glass. <laughs> <laughs> and once it was gone, then we'd both fire back in about 10, 15 minutes later. And mm -hmm. she was steady as a rock. Right. Could do the rest of the day, no problem. So, Somebody. yeah. <laughs> You're an enabler. Par for, par for the course, yeah. Cracking wow. times. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, uh, so what year is this, you say, 68? Yeah, sort of 68 into early 70s, really. So and you're in London in the swinging 60s? Oh, yeah. It was absolutely in the thick of it. It was Carnaby Street. It was, uh, you know, King's Road. It was all about hot pants and merry coats and white boots and, you know, all of it, really. Brilliant stuff. All that lovely stuff. Mm. I was going to ask you, you know, what, because I'm not sure if tribalism was really necessary in terms of culture really existed back then necessarily i guess in this in the uh the 50s you had your teddy boys and yeah. your, your rockers and your i guess the mods were a thing mm -hmm. in the 60s um and the hippies are in at that point i guess yeah. um what where were you in that in that cultural zeitgeist uh, what was your tribe it was it was all about the flower power right. it was it was long cheesecloth wrap around skirts it was you know it was swinging tops but you'd go from that into very short minis it was a sort of weird transition that you could go from super short to super long but great wedged platform heels to wear yeah. um and it was just very free and easy it was all about anything goes man yeah. you know it's 
peace in our time and yeah, all of that man. stuff. It was just so easy. And so if yeah. I went to your flat, right, mm. in um, Dolphin... Dolphin Square. Dolphin mm. Square, and I had a little route around your record collection in 1968, what am I finding in there? Oh, well, actually, it's interesting because it's um, it was things like, uh, I guess, Carly Simon, Elton John, um, Phil Collins. Uh, it was... Um, Phil Collins in 68? Yeah. Was it? <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? You can't even remember getting a job. <laughs> Maybe that was the wrong question to ask. I don't know. How much of this uh, period do you remember? Well, they, they always say if you can remember the 60s, you weren't there. <laughs> um, yeah, but no, certainly I remember a lot of the... Oh, Linda Lewis and people like that. You know, quite sort of funky voices, really. A lot of people who were different. Um, even the Carpenters, which is not really my bag at all. But right. that's some of the stuff I used to listen to then. She did used to sing and drum. Yeah. Which yeah. earns a lot of points well, I guess in my I, book. I was just going to say, that would be up your street then. Yeah, <laughs> which I've been meaning to pick mm. up um, a Carpenter's mm. compilation and just see what's going on there. Okay, so who who were you sort of bumping into in your, um, uh, your sort of uh, block of flats that, that you, you were possibly notable? Oh, God, you wouldn't bump into anybody. It was all really? very private. Oh. I mean, you'd walk in into the... Because they had several houses that were all named after admirals. Right. So I spent a time in Collingwood House, yeah. and then we moved and went to Grenville House. So right. they were all admirals. Um, but each of these houses had their own porter, who knew you very well, and you got to know him very well. Other than that, you didn't see a soul. You didn't, you didn't notice anybody. Nobody ever came out of their houses and mixed or anything like that. I guess that's by design. Yeah, absolutely. It was all very, very behind closed doors. It was that type of atmosphere there in the place wonderful um community gardens in the center of the um the whole commune if you like um and that was lovely in the summer because you'd see people out there on the grass with their little blankets and the butler would bring them china tea in china cups <laughs> <laughs> on a tray in the afternoon so yeah yeah living the life mm. so what was the um so obviously it sounds like you you're having quite a social life within your job mm. What was the social life like of the 60s in London? Uh, you're, a prof you're a young professional. Yeah. You've got, you're living in a good yeah. area. Mm -hmm. The world's your oyster. Mm -hmm. Your parents are back in Froome, <laughs> yeah. which is, uh, for anyone listening that doesn't know Froome or the area, it's about two hours. Well, it might have even been a four-hour drive back then. It was maybe. It was certainly a long time because there was no motorway then, yeah. no M4 then. Mm. So you really were... Uh, yeah. Really away. Yeah, it was a really two or three away. hour drive to get back home. Right. You know, we, you know. Um, but the social life was fantastic and it was all really built around the local. I mean, my, my local pub was a pub called The Australian, not far off Sloan Square. Um, and it was just a cracking pub where we would all meet. And it was very easy to get engaged in conversation. Most nights you'd stay there until 11 o'clock. Yeah. You'd go on for a curry or something like that, or go to a little bistro. Yeah. Um, so you get home about one o'clock, and that was just every night. But there was always, we were laughing all the time, but I guess that might be to do with the fact that you're in your 20s. Everybody laughs in their 20s, don't they? So um, it was just about making fun. We did everything we could just to enjoy ourselves. So we might have the odd, wacky, fancy dress party, anything yeah. to be different. Um, and I do remember on one occasion... Um, Jeff and I, that was my husband then, after a couple of years, had decided we were going to go on holiday. And I found this idyllic little place 
on an island called Eos in the Greek islands. Never heard of it, didn't know anything about it. Um, but we decided to book it, which we did, through a company called Sunmed, which was very, very new in those days. And when we were talking about it in the pub, another couple said, God, that sounds bloody lovely. Do you mind? Can we join you? I said, no, not at all. It'd be really? lovely to have your company. It'd be great. It's the 60s, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, come so along. Four of us, that was lovely. Within a couple of weeks, uh, we got a lot more. And eventually, I took 36 people from the pub <laughs> <laughs> to that whole day. And it was, it was absurd. It was just wonderful. We had the greatest time. Absolutely brilliant. Wow, 36 people. 36 people, yeah. That really is a local, isn't it? Yeah, it was. What did yeah. that pub look like while you were away? <laughs> oh, <laughs> pretty empty. Probably had a week yeah. off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you do you do this advertising thing for, for what was that, like 10, do you say 10 years? Like 10 years, yeah. And then what? Then what's the, what was the, the impetus for you to, uh, to move on from that? Because it sounds like a cool job. It was. It was fantastic. But, you know, you've got to remember I was coming to the end of my 20s by then. Uh, also, the biggest trigger for me was that my uh, my husband and I separated. Right. Um, and actually, because we were both in the advertising industry, which is very unusual, everybody knew us. It's, it's you know, it's, it's quite a small community, really, advertising. Right. Everybody knew us both. And my boss said to me, look, this is going to be very difficult for you. Yeah. Um, because he'd left me. So they said, this is going to be very difficult for you going around to everybody. What we've decided, we've had a chat, and we'd like to send you on a three-month sabbatical, fully paid, so that you can go off and contemplate your navel and come back when you're ready. Oh, how, my... how cool was that? Jesus. Yeah. You must have been very good at what you did. I loved it. I yeah. certainly loved it, yeah. This sounds like just a different era. It was. I mean, it, it was, obviously. Yes, but. you wouldn't have that now. It's all about commercialism and fast pace and everything now. It's very different. But I, I went off, um, I decided to put a pin in the map, literally, and I found this tiny island called Pantelleria. Yeah. Didn't know whether it was belonged to North Africa or Italy, because it was midway, yeah. in the middle of the ocean. Didn't know how to get there, <laughs> but I went. <laughs> how did you get there? Uh, actually, I had to fly to Palermo hmm. in Sicily, and then get a train down to the bottom and then catch a ferry over to Pantelleria. It was an overnight ferry that took six hours. And by the time I arrived, there were about 10 or 12 Vespers there waiting to take me off to say, come with me, come with me. <laughs> because they were all desperate. They'd never seen anybody on the island before, right. or an English person. Um, and they wanted to give me hospitality, you know, because the Italians are so beautifully hospitable. I mean, just lovely, lovely people. So um, anyway, I found a little place living with a seamstress and her daughter. And I was there for about three months. Didn't have any Italian at all. I mm. knew how to say ciao and spaghetti. That'll get me by. And I went off with my dictionary and a smile yeah. and a bit of sign language. And I got by. That's uh, amazing. Brilliant. But, you know, they knew nothing because, um, because it was so unusual to have a tourist on the island I was carrying traveller's checks in those days, which is, of course, the way you travelled. Right. And I went to the guy to say, the, the guy who owned the bar seemed to be like the, he was the patriarch, really, of the whole town. Right. And I said to him, where do I go? Where's the bank? Where do he said, oh, we don't have a bank. <laughs> <laughs> what do you want? I said, well, I've got traveller's checks. Oh, you leave that with me. Oh. But then he had to phone Sicily to find out what to do with them. Because they, 
Because <laughs> they've never had them before. Wow. So, yeah. so you, it's, it's this. What what year is this at this point that you're doing this? Oh, uh, this is sixty. Oh, this is seventy eight. Seventy seven. Seventy yeah. seven. Yeah. So seventy seven. You're a woman on your own mm-hmm. in a in a foreign land. Mm-hmm. There's no internet. Mm-hmm. There's no mobile phones. No. Did you? And society is a lot. I can't speak for Italian society at that. At that um, Point in time, but society was a very different place with, in terms of its attitudes to women, wasn't it? In that point, so did you ever feel nervous traveling on your own? Were you did you ever feel unsafe or never, never it's did? Quite the adventure, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, really? never, never did. My mother was far more nervous for me than I was. Right. She used to be terrified and say, Oh, don't trust anybody, you know, be careful of this and watch and don't do. No, my feeling was, I think the world's a lovely place. I think genuinely, most people are lovely human beings. Yeah. And my feeling was then and still is, if you trust people, you get payback. Yeah. You know, it works. And and I must admit, I was given some wonderful hospitality wherever. I mean, I've been around the world and, and everywhere I've been. I've, I've done a lot of travelling on my own. I've never, ever, well, only once been in a situation where <laughs> I could have got into trouble. And we were going we to get on to that. <laughs> Uh, so you're living with this seamstress. Uh, you don't speak the language much. How do you? How do you communicate? How do you get by in that situation? Literally by using sign language yeah. and the dictionary, and try just trying somehow to use your hands to get something across. You know, you, you're either wanting to eat or wanting a drink, or, or uh, you know, if you if you want to catch a train, yeah. you make a noise like a train. <laughs> <laughs> So then you start choo-choo. to ask. <laughs> choo-choo. <laughs> I'm not sure if it is choo-choo in Italian, one. <laughs> That's amazing. So when you left there, did you feel that you'd sort of found yourself in a way? Do you feel that you'd you'd got over your? Was it heartbreak? Yeah, I was pretty devastated. Right. I say, yeah. And there's yeah. nothing worse. It came than as that. a shock. It was a huge shock. Right. Um, came out of the blue. So yeah, it took me a while, but yes, I did. I came back. Um, of course, I I lost a lot of weight because I was eating very well, typical Mediterranean diet. So what's that? Fish a, and vegetables. Just one dish of pasta a day, right? Or fresh fish and salad, one dish per day. So you know, I was losing weight hand over fist. I got a fantastic suntan. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I came back feeling like the bee's knees. You know, you thought, <laughs> this is great. That is what we call a glow up. Is it? Yes. Where you you sort of. Um, yeah, you you get more, I guess, uh, you get more attractive, or you you know you you find your uh, you you peak. Do you know what yeah, I mean? You tra- yeah. And you, you sort of feel yourself a bit, and everyone sort of notices you a bit more. Absolutely. So when you came back, did you did you were you like he's gonna hate this? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, was there a little bit of sort of like you gonna know what you missed out on? What was his name? Jeff. Jeff. Yeah. You know, know what you missed out on here? I Jeff. have to secretly admit that didn't go through. Yeah. <laughs> He didn't drop his his mug or something in the office when he walked in. <laughs> That's brilliant. Yeah. So you were so then you came back to work and you re uh, reintegrated into um, into your job. How long before you you jumped ship? Then oh, I'm ashamed to say not very long. They gave me that sabbatical. Yeah in the hope that they would keep me when I came back. <laughs> and I was very naughty because it was only about six months later. Um, I had the opportunity to emigrate with a friend right. um, to Australia. Really, really, really good friend. And we went travelling. 
decided to go off to do this thing. Yeah. But we spent time, oh, we went to, uh, we flew into New York, we went to Canada, we went down to um, Miami, we went to Mexico, we went to Los Angeles, we went to San Francisco, all over the shop oh, on the way amazing. to this trip. Yeah. Um, but when we got to San Francisco, uh, I'm ashamed to say really, and I, I still feel uncomfortable about it a bit, but I bottled it then and I didn't go. I didn't go on to Australia. Right. The difference was she had a job to go to. She had contacts over there. I didn't. I mean, I'd left on the spur of the moment just... Right. Off I'm of off. your newfound yeah. um, yeah. confidence from yes. your sabbatical, I guess. Yes. You, you went, I can yeah, do, I'm do anything. a woman of the world yeah. now. But yeah. suddenly it dawned on me after all this travelling that I didn't have a job to go to. <laughs> I had no money. You're running out. <laughs> I had nowhere to live. So it was nonsense. And also I felt I hadn't really... I, I felt actually, in a way, I was still running away from, from the breakup. The grief, right? Um, and I just felt I ought to go back and face it. Yeah, just really sort of stand up to it. That's interesting. You. Have you always been? Are you quite an introspective person? Do you do a lot of sort of checking in with yourself? Yeah. Monitoring, thinking about how you actually feel about a situation. Mm-hmm. Um, do you realise it? Do you ever have? think back to something you go actually I thought I was having lots of fun then Mm. but really I was dealing with something uh yeah I certainly did in that instance um I have to say now at this age of this stage of my life um I look back thinking yes by god I've had a lot of fun yeah but I don't doubt it now. I have had a lot of fun. <laughs> <You> can't deny <laughs> it. Well, I have been so blessed with my life. Really, it's been fantastic. It's been a, a roller coaster of fun. I remember being in a meeting when I worked at Virgin for about 10 years. And I remember being in a management meeting. And there were about 12 of us around the table. Mm. And the boss said one Monday morning, he said, right, we'll, we'll start slightly differently today. He said, I just want you all, I'm going to give you five minutes. I want you all to think of a title of whatever you would like to be. Anything, you yeah. know, the the oyster is, you know, world's your oyster. And I remember thinking about it and I thought, what would I really like the world to know me as? What would I choose as my title? And I decided, and I've held to it, I think, since, I want to be a facilitator of fun. Uh-huh. Right. I just think that is the most wonderful position to be in. And I, when I look back, I realise I've probably instigated a lot of that throughout yeah. my life, one way or another. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, and so, so you bottle it. You don't go to Australia. Mm-hmm. How how does your friend take that? Is she like oh, very you... very upset. We right. still talk about it now. Really? Yeah, I think she felt very betrayed at the time. Okay. Um, and I get that, and I and I feel, uh, I I feel really bad still. Still, you hold still regret. I don't regret the fact that I didn't go because my life turned out to be so wonderful here. Yeah. I regret that. She went through those feelings and had right. to travel on her own to something she thought she was going into with a with a with mate a companion. Right? Yeah, I see. Um, but yeah. So, so how does so? Yeah. So you say to her, "This is an awkward conversation. Mm. I'm not going on now mm-hmm. to this next phase of you." And I guess you probably had these feelings brewing for a little while mm-hmm. until you got to the point where you went, "I have to. I have to tell have to this person it. now." Yeah. yeah. Do you tell her how do you how do you break something like that to someone? I can't remember the conversation. I, I you you just have to talk about the fact. Look, I've been sitting, and and thinking a lot about what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. 
Um, and I'm starting to come to some conclusions that aren't going to sit well with either of us. I don't even know that it's the right decision for me or for you. I'm still in turmoil about it. It's a massive dilemma. But I just feel for my own sanity, yeah. where I am now, I have to, I have to go back. Right. And so, obviously, they're going to have some very raw, visceral, mm. almost like knee-jerky reactions, I guess, mm-hmm. at that at that moment and then I, I i would assume that some weeks or months pass and they go i, I say i tell you what i kind of see it from your point of view now oh or did I, they I never think, do that yeah no <laughs> she is still my closest friend right still we've been friends for well all that time so i'm, I'm talking 40 years yeah um and she'll say now, it was definitely the best decision you could have taken. Right. Um, so I know I have a support in that, without doubt. Yeah. But, but she'll she, still say, but you, you left me alone when yeah, I needed that's, it. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. And so what year is this again? 77? 77. And so she goes off to yeah. uh, Australia, yeah. Um, down under, mm-hmm. a very, very long uh, way away. Yeah, yeah. How do you guys maintain pre-internet? Yeah. Um, maintain a relationship, a friendship that's clearly very deep, mm-hmm. very loving, yep. um, over such a distance. It was all letter writing. Right. All letter writing and postcards. That's, that's what we... seems funny now, talking about postcards. Yeah. But that's what we had. It was just backwards and forwards. And you'd have these lovely thin airmail letters that would come through the post. Yeah. Um, and there'd be reams of them. Um, and, of course, in those days, you only had the one letter that would fold up. So you'd be writing in the margins and down the sides, <laughs> trying to say what you wanted to say. But Yeah, so we, we communicated regularly. Always have done. Right. Yeah. That's fascinating that, that that's something that's been maintained because it's a lot of effort, isn't it? Mm. It's a lot of effort to essentially have a pen pal. Yeah. Um, yeah. for all those years. Yeah, but we, I mean, we'd done so much together. We were so close. Right. She really helped me through my divorce period and everything. Yeah. Um, so you, you, you do bond at, at emotional times like that, particular thing. So, yeah. yeah. And so did you go and visit her? Um, and she, well, did she come visit you? She came over quite a lot. Yeah. She used to come home probably about every 18 months or so and uh, always came and stayed here. Yeah. Um, so there was a lot of that. But, of course, by the time I had moved on, I mean, it was only a year, 18 months later, that I had moved back to Froome. Right. And met my second husband. And we weren't earning big money then. Mm. I was living back living in Froome. I was well away from the London high life. Right. High earning. Yeah. And we had the kids, and so money was a real struggle. We mm. couldn't afford to take a holiday to Australia. That was like something far out in space for us. Right, yeah, yeah. So It's still a big... It's uh, huge. It's still it's a, a big holiday. And it's a lot of money. It's yeah. a huge amount of money. And, and it was way beyond our pocket in those days. But we finally took the trip in 99. In wow. 1999. So over 20 years later, yeah. I arrived with John and the kids on, Ameri- on, on Australian soil and I broke my heart. Because it, it was so emotional because right. I thought I should have, I was supposed to be here 20 years ago. It's taken me this long oh. to get here. It was such an emotional moment. I I remember the plane landing and I had tears streaming down my face when we arrived. It was just amazing. Wow. So, and I've been over three or four times since, obviously. Right. Um, yeah, love so the place. So you had, a, a, you had a, an emotional connection immediately with yeah. Australia. 
Yeah. And this is, is this because you were like, this is where my best friend lives? Yes. Yeah. And because I felt I got to know it through her. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and John had family in Adelaide. I've also got friends that I worked with who had moved to Australia. So I had a lot of people I knew out there right. and heard all their stories. Somewhere I'd always wanted to go and I finally got there. That is such yeah. a powerful story. Mm. I've always wanted to go to Australia. I used to watch a lot of um, the Steve Irwin stuff. Oh, right, I yeah. He was great. Yeah. Um, he really appeals to... Um, well, a lot of lot of people, but especially hyperactive young boys. He was fine. My boys loved him. Yeah. We used to sit and watch it together. Yeah, brilliant guy. Just great. Yeah. Um, I've always had a strange affinity with Australia, but I've never mm. been. Mm. But I've always liked programs. You know, there's like programs where they go and they buy a house there and they have oh, to yes, decide yeah, whether yeah. they're going to move. Oh, yeah, yeah. Whether they're going to stay or, or move. Yeah. You know, I always used to watch those shows mm. and just think this place just looks like a place I would yeah. just love. It is. It's a dream place, yeah. and abs- You know, I've never been to a more user-friendly city right. than Sydney. And the thing I love about it is, it it's got everything that I want out of a place to live. Right. In that, it's a very vibrant city, very youthful, very creative, and it's on the water. Uh, Everywhere is on the water. Yeah. So you go to a cafe or a bar, and you can just sit out in on your chair and just watch the. Boats come in and out, and oh, it's just it's idyllic. Is it a lifestyle? It's yeah, a different oh yes. lifestyle, isn't totally it? different lifestyle. Yeah, yeah. And it's it, the sunshine, isn't it? That's that's what makes a big difference. But you know, you eat on the beach, you take your coffee onto the beach, you walk on the beach. It's daily routine, right? To hear the ocean, right? And that's an interesting thing as well because it, it you probably have a much bigger connection to nature mm. it's probably far more humbling on a daily basis mm-hmm. that you're always confronted by something vast and powerful and unforgiving yeah but also so incredibly beautiful mm. um it probably says a lot about the lifestyle and how they they seem to at least from what i can see with australia have a way more um carefree fun uh orientated existence yeah i think they do it's all about you know invitations to parties it's all about open house it's about opening up your garden meeting people in bars on the water eating out outside on pavements lovely life but bear in mind of course that with australia um it's not all um it's not all about the sunshine and the culture and things like that because a lot of australians i think the one thing they find really difficult particularly the younger ones coming up is that it's so far away from everywhere. So it's very expensive to travel. Right. And a lot of uh, people coming up, you know, when they finish their education maybe, you know, the idea of staying in Australia, Mm. um, I think for a lot of people feels quite limiting because they've never really seen the world because the rest of the world is so blooming far away. (laughs) And did you make any trips to New Zealand? No, it's one of the few places I haven't been. I've done Fiji, um, but I haven't done New Zealand. Um, but I've done I've done a lot of travel in my life actually through through America, Africa, Asia, yeah. Oh, yeah. This is a dream. This is such a dreamy thing. I always wanted to have a job that allowed me to travel, and I've talked about the band on the podcast a lot before, and the travel opportunities that 
that's presented and it's just been those are the greatest times of, of yeah. my life yeah. and it really does expand your mind oh doesn't hugely it? hugely and you know meeting people of different cultures and the thing i love people say well what, you know why don't you want to stay in the uk you've got some go to cornwall on a nice day <laughs> <laughs> get out of there it's lovely yeah. but <laughs> i loved and of course for me a lot of the fun of travel went when everybody was on the euro because right. I used to love dealing with the drachma and the franc and the mark, all those sort of different cult, different currencies. Right. Um, when it became the euro, it got a bit boring. Right. Uh, but, <laughs> but, you know, being... Your money sucks. <laughs> being introduced to different foods, different drinks, different uh, cafe styles, everything. I mean... I, it was just fascinating for me. I mean, going to Bulgaria when it was still a communist country right. was uh, it was mind-boggling because right. women were sweeping the streets and collecting the dust carts. You'd go into every restaurant that sold identical food at identical prices, and the only way you'd know you were in a different restaurant was because in one there would be a four-piece quartet playing as you walked in. <laughs> right. In another one there might be a little bit of piped music. In another one the chap would greet you with a bow tie. Right. But that was the only way you knew the difference. The right. menus were state-controlled. Um, all the, the um, locals couldn't buy local goods. Um, there was a huge black market for money in those days. I mean, I'm going way back to about early 80s. And uh, I remember going across and somebody said, look, if you use the black market, you'll get three times the value for your money. Right. And they said, the lifeguards are really good at doing that. So just go and talk to the lifeguard. Right. So then, of course, they sit up on great high chairs. And I remember going to see a lifeguard and I sat down and I said, I understand you change money. Shh. He said, be quiet, be quiet. <laughs> so I said, well, what shall I do? He said, Dig a hole in the sand next to my chair and put your money in it. How much do you want to change? <laughs> so I think it was about twenty pounds or something. <laughs> so I, I do, and he said, "No, walk away." <laughs> I said, "Well, how do I know? How do I get the money?" He said, "Don't worry, I'll come and find you." <laughs> so, so I had to take all this on trust. And sure enough, we got about three times the value of the open market. Right. And on another day, I went down there and said, Look, "I come for some money." He said, "Go down to the sea." with your camera, pretend to drop your camera, and when you pick it up, put the money in the sand. <laughs> it was all very furtive. That's but hilarious. he would change it on condition that I went to the shop for him to buy toothpaste and soap and deodorant, which is things that they didn't have access to. Oh, I see. So that was the trade. That right. was the deal. Yeah. Oh, interesting. So when you think back to when travelling was like that, uh, very different from the way it is today. Right. Of course, Bulgaria is one of the... Great places to go now. It's, you know. That's um, that is quite incredible. Um, what brought you to Bulgaria? Uh, it was a cheap and cheerful family holiday in those days. <laughs> <laughs> we had little money. Darling, so... you must go. I've heard the black market is exquisite. <laughs> it was absolutely great, and I've been back to Bulgaria twice since. I've been for a summer holiday and skiing in Bulgaria. And did that you go back fun. for the lifeguard? Did you go and say, "One of my <laughs> no, friends on the beach." <laughs> I'm not sure they do that now, bless them. That's hilarious. Yeah, yeah. So you've come, so so you've come back from. Uh, uh, so uh, th let's get on to. Um, I'm trying to figure out where we were in your timeline before we went off there. Tell me about Virgin when you were working for Virgin, because okay. you've told me a little bit about sort of brief hangouts with Richard Branson and things like yeah. that. So sort of, was yeah. that the next? Well, I wouldn't. I wouldn't call it a hangout. But <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, I, this is why I'm asking. Um, uh, 
you so is, is this was this the next professional trip after mm, you've come back from London? Not really, no, because I, I came back, as I said, I came back. I actually came back because I got when I was still living in London, I'd just come back from um San Francisco. Uh I got bronchitis. Right. And I was feeling really rough. It was about two weeks before Christmas. And I rang my mum just to say happy Christmas and she said, God, you sound dreadful. And I said, yeah, I'm feeling a bit rough. She said, well, why don't you come home, just recharge your batteries, and then you can go back after Christmas. Yeah. So I came home. I got myself a little job working in the portway at night over the bar, in yeah. a penny bar in those days. Oh, yeah. um, and I met John, my second husband. So yeah. I never did go back to London. Ah. So we he was got... worth staying for. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, love at first sight and all that. Um, so we we were together for a couple of years. We got married. We had the children. Um but I had I spent five years, actually, before we had the kids, working at a company in Bath called Land Travel, right. which was a tour operator. Right. And uh, they used to run coaches to Europe for right. social organisers. So you'd leave on a Friday night and you'd come back on a Monday morning. Right. But it was, oh, God, it was a shambles. <laughs> they used to grab couriers off the streets mm. and say to a young chap, grab somebody about you, do you want to earn yourself 20 quid this weekend? Oh, yes, please. Yeah. Well, come and be on this coach, and if anything goes wrong, give us a ring and we'll get it sorted. <laughs> it was all very amateurish, yeah. yeah. Um, but I I worked there for five years, took on a team of couriers and trained them up, put them in uniform and got them properly trained and all that sort of thing, and loved it, loved the job, yeah. and used to go off to Europe uh, 13 weeks on the trot every winter doing presentations. We'd take coachloads of these people away. Right tell them what it was all about and show them and say, right, now go back and fill the coaches with your own clubs. So I had a lovely job doing that. Then I left to have the children. Um, and I hate not working. So even though I, I didn't have a full-time job, I had, I think at one stage, eight part-time jobs. <laughs> doing, what? Doing different things. So that was fun. Can you remember these eight? What were you yeah, doing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, uh, I was, I ran my own china business, selling china and pottery. Um, I worked at weekends uh, on the open top buses in Bath as a tour guide. Um, I was selling um, knockoff perfume. <laughs> um, I actually was collecting the football pool's money, believe it or not, once right. or, once a week. Um, there were just lots of different jobs I was doing, and I ran my own catering business. And um, I was looking after a little girl, like a foster mother, right. which I did for five years. So, uh, yeah, lots and lots of different things going on. You're prolific. Kept me busy. <laughs> kept me busy. Tell, um, tell me about yeah. fostering. What's that? Well, what it, sort of roller coaster is it, that? It wasn't fostering as such. It was just a very sad story, really. It was a, a neighbour of mine whose wife died within weeks of giving birth to a little girl. And he tragically went off to live with her sister in Manchester for the first six months trying to get over the grief of it all, because there he was, left alone with a little baby to manage. But he decided to come home after six months and needed someone to look after this little girl. Um, and we've got a lot of lovely neighbours around here, and lots of people stood up, stood up and said, you know, I'll, I'll have her for a day or two, or, you know, I can take her. I, I always felt she needed something more than that. She, it was like she needed a surrogate mother almost, yeah, right. consistency in her yeah, life. consistency is um, key. Rather than just, you know, it's Mary on Monday and Haggis She's on Tuesday. She's getting passed around. Absolutely. Even yeah. though this is a, they're lovely people, yes, I'm sure, yes. that 
Yeah, I know it, what you're That didn't feel right. So, um, and, and the other thing, you know, sometimes you think, oh, this is fate. This mm. is meant to be because yeah, yeah. Um, we've got two boys and if we'd had a little girl, we were going to call her Joanna Louise. Right. And this little girl was called Joanna Louise. Oh, my God. And I remember saying to her dad, you know, I would dearly love to look after her. I've got, I've got my own boys now. They, I think they were five and three or four and two at the time. So I'm perfectly placed now. Yeah. I'm at home all the time. But I want to take it on really as a business because it, this isn't a favour from a neighbour. If it's done as a business, you'll feel able to come to me and dictate yeah. what I need to do or what I'm mm -hmm. doing wrong. So we're on a footing that you feel very comfortable with. And also it means that I would only do it as long as I take her on until she starts school because I think she needs that stability yeah, for the luck. first four or five years of her life. Right. And that's what I did. And uh, he, he got married again, uh, which was absolutely wonderful. And they moved to somewhere... Um, a few miles away, and it was just about the time when she was about five years old. So it was perfect timing. Yeah. Really hard to let her go, mind you. Oh, I mean, my God. <laughs> yeah. Was that emotional? Did he have to, like, sort of break that to you, to sort of, like, gently? Well, or... I knew it was coming. Right. I knew it was coming, yeah. yeah. Right but it was board. very hard because she'd been part of it. She'd been on a holiday with us, you know. And, and part of the family. I still think so fondly of her now, but she's yeah. got her own children now. She's got twins now, so oh, wow. lovely. Yeah. So do you see her often now? No, I talk to her, but uh, no, I don't see her very often these days because, again, she's not living in Froome anymore. So, right. Yeah. So where did they move to when did they go? Uh, they, I think she, they've gone to not Farnborough, Farnborough, I think it is, or right. somewhere like that, yeah. It's incredible. We're not even halfway through, are we? <laughs> <laughs> We're not even halfway through this timeline. I just can't believe that that name coincidence. Yeah. And you know when you said about fate mm -hmm. and things like that, do you ever feel like you've, do you feel like you have an inner compass? Oh, gosh, yes. Yeah, I've always felt yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. And I haven't, I haven't really felt it necessarily for a little while, but definitely when I was younger, teenagers into sort of early 20s, mm -hmm. I always knew what my next move had to be. Mm -hmm. Even if it was a little bit scary, but yep. but it's 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 an instinct, you isn't it? You know it's it? coming. And you don't know where it comes from, yep. but you know, you just know you have to go there. Mm -hmm. And it's super powerful. And um, I sort of miss it in a way. I guess it, it will come back. It will come. Yeah, it will when come you're back. ready to make a move, you'll know. Yeah, yeah. I always did. And I always knew it about six months before it was due to happen. Really? Yeah, it used to take about that long right, to manifest it. itself. Yeah. And I thought, oh, this something's going to happen here. I don't know. I didn't even know what it was. I had no idea right. which turn it would, would be. But, um, yeah, always felt it. And I, it's interesting because, you know, you talk about fate. Um, Steve and I were talking about this because we've been together for two years now. And we were basically, you know, people who've been on our own for quite a few years really floundering around in the ocean like two big ships, not you know, <laughs> yeah. living life, loving it. Everything was fine, but, you know, we bumped into each other at just the right time, at yeah. the perfect moment, and it's just the most brilliant fit. So, yeah. you know, it's You guys fate, definitely, um, you've definitely got the chemistry. Oh, yeah. And there's, yeah. there's such a, um, there's such a relaxed vibe mm. around you two. Mm. It's really quite beautiful, really. It's really, it's really oh, yeah. nice. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. How did you meet Steve? 
Uh, on a dating website. <laughs> <laughs> you of get course. out there, don't you? You don't leave. <laughs> you just go for things, don't you? There's no stopping you. And it was actually it was odd because I was due to go off on holiday. I, was, I got a holiday booked to Greece because I, I used to take about 10, 12 holidays a year. <clears throat> and uh, this particular occasion, I was booked to go for two weeks to Crete. And I, Steve and I, I think we'd text once and had a phone conversation. Yeah. And... Uh, I said, well, I'm off on holiday. I don't know whether it's worth meeting beforehand or, you know, maybe we should leave it come back. And we chatted about something or other and said, well, there's only one possible time and that could be the Sunday, the day before I go, really. Yeah. I've just got that one day, yeah. you know, if you fancy we'll do it. So we met for Sunday lunch. Yeah. And we just didn't stop talking. It was just, it took off. Right. We had an amazing lunch, shared a bottle of wine. Went out in the garden afterwards with coffee and brandy and just didn't stop talking. Right. And I remember going off to Greece thinking, oh, my God, I, I can't I'm not going. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I need to come back early. Yeah. Uh, but we talked every day while I was away. Yeah. Um, it just felt so natural. Yeah. yeah. You so. do know it, don't you, when you're in the midst of, yes. a, some, of, of a, yeah. a relationship that has that yeah. s- that little something to it you think why do I care a bit more than normal <laughs> absolutely you know and the yeah. conversation just goes and goes yeah. and goes yeah. and then you turn around and you go wow I've been talking mm. to you for like three months mm. every day mm. and I'm not yeah. not bored yeah 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 it's great very special it's lovely very special yeah. and, it, and it's not you know the thing that I liked about Steve was I remember in our conversation the first conversation we had on the phone um, he said well what is it you're really looking for and I I said well to be perfectly honest I've been with a couple of guys where, you know, I feel as though they say what they think I want to hear. Right. I want somebody to shoot from the hip to tell me how it is. And if if I need putting straight, I want somebody to put me straight. He <laughs> said, no problem with that, girl. I'm from Yorkshire. You'll get that from me. <laughs> so I remember thinking, yeah, that's my man. That's great. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, i I got a lot of love for mm. Steve. Um, mm. I've got a lot of time for him. Um so where were we? So you've gone. Uh, where were we? Where were we too? This is this oh, is yeah, such a I, phenomenal yeah. life story. You've you've uh, you've fostered, and she's flown the nest yeah. for lack of a better, better term. <laughs> yeah. Um, is I guess that's where we're at then, oh. isn't it? What then? So you've suddenly you've so got I one went, down. Yeah. Well, I went back to work. Decided when my kids were about nine, but you know they, they were okay then. I could go back to work. I'd done the bit of giving them um, that sort of solid start. And uh, I took a job working for a company uh, that's now the KFC building <laughs> <laughs> up near Sainsbury's. Um, and in those days, it was called Enterprise House. Right. And it was run by a company called Amway, International right. Business Systems, which is an American offshoot of Amway. And to all intents and purposes, pyramid selling, although they would never use that word because it was outlawed. But it was very much about, you know, I'm going to sell goods and then, you know, I'll take a piece of your commission and a piece of your commission. It's a big pyramid selling thing. Um, um, Five years I did that. (sighs) It's interesting that Mm. it seems to be that your jobs last roughly five years of time. Um, is that the, is that at the arc of your your I'm not I'm not suggesting you have commitment issues. It is if I'm. <laughs> but, but what I'm saying is, yeah. is, is this seems That's to be the my, natural my attention span. I the think probably cycle for I, I start to need a different challenge then right. after that. 
Um, and then um, I got made redundant from that job because the, the company was just shrinking because it, those companies only ever do well when the economy is struggling because people are looking to... Boost their uh, incomes. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it was, it was changing. So um, people were being made redundant. And so I heard that Virgin were coming to Trowbridge to set up a head office to, to start up a company called Virgin Mobile. And I remember thinking, yeah, I, I want to do that. That's me. It sounds like exactly the sort of place I want to work. Yeah. So I went for an interview and they said, uh, no, I'm sorry, you're overqualified. We can't take you. Yeah. <laughs> I said, no, come on. I just, I really want this and I, and I know I can do it. Right. Uh, it was only going to be on the phones to start with because I was quite happy to go in at that level, yeah. thinking it, with everybody being, they were taking on 200 people, I think. Right. And I thought, just go in, and when the time is right, put your head above the parapet, and, yeah. and, and you can move from there. Yeah. But they said, no, you're far too overqualified, and we'll spend all this money to train you up, and then you'll push off. Yeah. And I said, no, really, I, I'm desperate to do this. Nope, sorry. So I was given the boot, right. sent out. And I remember going out into the car park, turning around and looking at that building, yeah. thinking, this isn't right. right. I'm meant to work here. I right. know I'm meant to work here. So your compass kicked in again. Yeah. So I went I went through a different route. Right. I went back to an agency yeah. and said, can you get me an interview? <laughs> <laughs> and they said, yeah, okay. They set it up for me. And I saw a different woman who interviewed me and they took me on. Right, interesting. So I got in. Maybe she just, uh, you, may, you know, maybe she, you were a threat. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but I knew I was going to be meant to work there. Um, so it was inevitable. I had to try again and make sure I did. And mm. so you did put your head above the parapet, I'm yeah. assuming, after... Yeah, six. I started on the phones, and within six weeks I was made customer centre coordinator. Right. <laughs> and actually it meant that I, I wore about 25 different hats, I think. Right. Because I did everything. I remember coming home and pouring over blueprints at night to do all the logistics about moving desks around. And if you if you had any idea with a call centre, how many people that's because we were fifteen hundred people in the end. Mm. When you've got a uh, you're when you're expanding to get to that number, you've got to keep moving into different parts of the building and spreading out. And each time you do that, you have to move everybody's desk and their computer and look at their floor ports, and look at their telephone. So I was struggling with all this, seeing which department should work with which. So logistics was one part. I was the face of Virgin. So if we had any visitors, I would take them around the building and show them everything. And right. This is who we are and what we do. I put in for uh, submitting all the awards uh, that we wanted to go for. I would do all the entries for all the big awards for the top 10 companies, right. um, things like that. Uh, I managed all the escalator complaints. So any complaint that came in to a director in writing, I would end up responding to. And I love that job. Absolutely love it. I love dealing with knotty problems and getting the sorted. So that was one of the things I loved. And I also ran, probably the biggest thing I did there was I ran a huge reward and recognition scheme right. that gave back to staff. Oh, and, and I was in charge of the charity budget, which was... 1% of the net profit the company made, which is a million quid. Right. So I went off to South Africa and worked with the charities and all sorts of things. So, yeah, tell me, tell me about South job. Africa. Well, it must have been quite uh, an experience. So you yeah. did charity work? Well, uh, no, or? not I didn't do charity work. We we looked, we were working with a lot of charities over there. Right. Um, 
and Richard was very keen to work with a lot of people in South Africa. He was very keen to try and get rid of AIDS and HIV and those sorts of things. So he had fingers in a few pies over there. Yeah. Um, there was a wonderful Dutch doctor, and I'm going to lose this, Hugo Templeman, I think he was called, um, who discovered all sorts of new tips and what have you for uh, pulling people back from the brink of, of dying. Right with HIV and AIDS and what have you. Amazing man. Right. And uh, Richard wanted to work with him because he was impressed by all his work. And he wrote to Hugo Templeman and said, can you come and visit me? I'd like to talk to you. And, <laughs> and Hugo said, I'm far too busy over here in Africa working with all these people, saving lives. You want to see me, you come to me. Wow. <laughs> and he did. It's a powerful yeah. man. So uh, there was a lot of that going on. We worked with um, charities. There was a, a charity called Starfish. Right. Uh, and all these sort of organisations were working with young children or orphans or um, you know, supporting kids who were orphaned by AIDS, um, you know, feeding them. The, the wonderful women that just come out off the streets almost. You know, they start by seeing a hungry child walking to school and say, come in and I'll give you some soup. And the next day she brings her friend. And before you know it, there are 100 kids calling in every day. Yeah. For, and it's usually broth made from bones or something. Right. But they're, they're using it as a social centre as well. So okay. amazing some of the stuff that goes on over there. And so where did you go from, from Virgin? What's, what, what was, is that the, the biggest thing you did with Virgin? Tell me about Richard, because you've, like, you've met Richard. You've I've said met him, yeah, I've met him a few times. Um, well, of course, because, because one of my roles was um, any visitors who come, I show them around. Oh, so you show <laughs> him around. <laughs> hey, Rachel, what's up? But, you know, I tell you something, that man runs. You know, Is he? And he's very shrewd, um, because he, he, I mean, he knows the setup of all his course, and he knows all the, the things that people do. But he, when he walked around a building... He would just literally stop wherever he wants to stop and chat. And then he would find out all about what that person was doing, not just about the job, but about them. Mm. And he'd sit down on a chair where people were in the call centre and put the headphones on and say, hello, can I help you? This is Richard. Yes, Richard Branson. Oh, <laughs> yes, I am. You know, and all this sort of thing. And so really hands-on. Yeah. And he would, as you walk past meeting rooms, he would open a door and poke his head in. So what's this meeting about? And they say, oh, we're discussing, I don't know, could be 3D TV or something. Yeah. Oh, no, yeah, no, I know all about that. And I'll tell you this, that, and the other. And have you thought about this? He knew everything that was going on. But a great, fun guy. Right. Always up for a bit of fun. I get that hint from him because of the, the things he would, he'd would invest in in the early days, like the Sex Pistols. He'd mm -hmm. sign the Sex Pistols yeah. to his record label. Yeah. And he definitely was a bit more of a hippie, I guess. Uh, or, or a bit more alternative in the business world when he started. He was out. very shrewd. He right. was very shrewd. I mean, remember, because I, I, I've read some of his books, and uh, I know he talked about when he was a very young boy in being out with his parents, and they turfed him out of the car, and it was about 11 miles from home or something, and said, Right, make your way home, son. So he, you know, he was made to think on his feet from a very early age. Right. And I think that's so instilled in him. Yeah. To be an independent thinker, yeah, yeah, yeah. incredible. Yeah. Do you think he operates on a on a neurological level that most people can only dream to experience in fleeting moments throughout I, their life? Well, I don't know. He, I, he's he's an extraordinary guy. He's 
He's very intuitive. Yeah. But he relies quite heavily, I think, on the people around him as well. He's very good at, at supporting himself with good people. Um, and one of the ways that he takes somebody on as a right-hand man is to invite them to his home for a weekend. And if they get on, yeah. that's fine, I can trust you. And he encourages the, the CEOs of all his companies to do the same thing. Right, hangability. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Because it's all about people. It's all about, can I trust you? Um, and if I can, you deserve your second chances if you go wrong or whatever. But it's all about the working relationship that's crucial, really. Right. Yeah. That's fascinating. And and what what did you feel? What were your feelings um, with the bailouts with the in, during the COVID uh, early on in the COVID um, pandemic? Uh, he was asking for quite a lot of bailouts, wasn't he, with the airlines and things like that. And mm. he didn't earn himself very good press or no, favour, did he? No. Is this part of a, a much longer game, do you think, that in the end of it, he's actually going to come out with the goods and, and he'll turn it around and public opinion will sway back in his favour? Because he was always a popular billionaire, always wasn't been, he? Yeah, absolutely, because he's always been a man for the, the people. He was a consumer yeah. man. Yeah. Um, but you've got to remember at the bottom line is that he's a businessman. Yeah. It's all about keeping his businesses afloat. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and he'll do the best he can for everybody until the business is threatened when he can't service anyone and then he has to make a move. Right. Um, you know, it, it's it's a tough position to be in, but of course I don't think the airlines gained any favour uh, from anybody, did they, through the yeah. COVID thing. It was the one area we were saying, for heaven's sake, fat cats, you know, you make a load of money, it's about time you sat back and supported other people i did just see a headline today i can't remember what it said exactly but apparently richard branson has unveiled a scheme which is um going to create um multiple multiple millionaires for, right. um, in entrepreneurship yeah that doesn't so surprise he might me be on the um he might be on his way back to earning yeah, some good graces <laughs> well certainly in south africa i was saying to you earlier he, he ran a school of entrepreneurship yeah. for young people to create their own businesses. So he's very much in favour of getting people to think that way, to, to be creative, stand on their own feet, do something that's radical and different um, and, and be successful. So he's very good at that. Mm. Yeah. I, I, yeah, it's, it's a, a, tough, a tough one for me because I, I remember watching his show uh, when I was a kid when he... It was almost like... I don't know if it predated The Apprentice or whether it was... Um, some sort of competition to the yeah, apprentice yeah. where he would take these people uh, um, up in the balloon up in the balloon sorts, yeah. yeah on a hot air balloon yeah, for yeah. afternoon tea or That's something right. Absolutely. and this was how he was going to pick his yeah. um ceos or his his um inner circle or something like that um and i always thought that was very cool very fun mm -hmm. um you you didn't apply for that show <laughs> no, sounds like something no, you would have done <laughs> But he's a fun. I mean, he the parties. He he threw some great parties. My God, you know, I, some of the parties we've had down here. I mean, great big headlines in the local paper: sex, drugs, and rock and roll at Virgin. <laughs> um, but we used to take over um, Club Ice. You remember in Westbury places? I like never that. went to Club Ice, but I know the big, legend. Yeah, Club big nightclubs and things like. We take over the space, and there would be the entry into all these places would be you'd have to show your pass on your lanyard, Yeah. show your pass, 
tip your head back and you'd be given a glug of vodka from the bottle. <laughs> and that, that, that was your entry. You know? um, so there were fun times and you'd walk into these huge ice sculptures. Yeah. With vodka running down them, you know, yeah. the men drinking from the booths and the women from other parts of the body. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh yeah, just and it was rock and roll music. We used to have a lot of names. It was always Boy George doing the uh, the disco, and you know that we uh, we'd have uh, I don't know, who do we have there? I can't remember Saturdays or the Sugar Babies or something. Right, you know some of these names that he'd pull in from his label. From his probably. label, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's amazing. Uh, well, I'm just wondering when we're going to get to the um, the ACDC club. Oh my how, god! How far I away from ACDC club? Are oh we? wow! Well, that was that was when I was very first married to John. My right. second marriage, yeah, that was back in '83. I think we started. So tell me about the ACDC club. It's not a fan club for ACDC. No, ACDC stands for Anita Collier's Drinking Club. <laughs> <laughs> And it was only a bit of nonsense. And it came about because, as I was telling you, I had this job where we used to take coach loads to Europe, etc. Yeah. And uh, I was at a coffee morning with friends. I had my two young kids. The youngest was only one. And we, I was at a coffee morning with five or six women. And I was saying, oh, I miss my booze cruise. I used to go across at Christmas and pick up the booze on my trips. And the three or four of them said, oh, I've never done that. I'd love to do it. And I said, well, I'd be happy to organise it. If each one of you could go off and get three or four people, we'd probably raise a coach. Not for a second thinking they'd do it. Right. But they did. <laughs> they came up. We raised 50 people. Right. And we went off for an overnighter. I think we left at some unearthly hour, like four in the morning. Yeah. And we did Portsmouth, Cherbourg overnight and then came back. And I remember one poor girl, I put out all this information to people about what to do, where to go, how to do it. <laughs> and this poor girl totally forgot to get her passport. <laughs> so she had to stay on the ferry and keep going backwards and forwards. <laughs> Until we got back on. Um, but we came back, uh, and I remember the cost of it. It was, uh, I think it was about 19 and 11 pence or something. I mean, you know what I mean, yeah. old money. It, it was very little money. I think it was about 19 quid. Um, and it was part of the family allowance. So that's how we paid for it. <laughs> and at the end of the trip, they all said, God, we've had such a fantastic time. Can we do it next year? And I said, look, it's been wonderful, but I don't for a second think you could get this to happen again. If right. you can, I'm happy to do it. But yeah. I wasn't expecting anything. And lo and behold, the following year, we had 100 million. <laughs> <laughs> and then that was that continued for 15 years. Wow. I took 100 women abroad to Europe yeah. for long weekends. Uh, and we did, every, we, I, we've done Paris two or three times, done Amsterdam, um, been to the Rhineland for three days, uh, Belgium, uh, everywhere you can think of as a European capital, we've done. Yeah. I took them to, I, I, we went to Dublin, we've done Waterford. So a couple of trips to Ireland. I even chartered a couple of planes once to go to Jersey. <laughs> I, love I love this. Yeah, it was fun. Um, it was fun. And what sort of, um, I mean, a hundred women away from their husbands, mm, significant mm, others, mm, mm. Um, probably m many of them mothers let loose oh, for yeah. a very rare. Oh yeah. oh yeah. This sounds like it's yeah. you've got some stories. But can you there, can you can you imagine? The story, the headlines in the paper, you know, 100 women going off on an ACDC trip. Because <laughs> nobody, nobody mentioned the fact that, well, what it stood for. So we had once or twice, 
I have had husbands who got very angry with me and came back and said, I, I, my wife is not coming on this trip. I was oh. absolutely outrageous. Um, so, You're yeah, a bad influence got on funny. But uh, we've had some unbelievable times, really, some extraordinary times on those trips. Um, yeah. I, <laughs> I do remember in Bruges, we, I don't know where, we, we'd probably been to Amsterdam or Brussels, I expect, but we used to call back into Bruges on the way home yeah. to ferry back from Zeebrugge. And uh, on this particular occasion, I got, I was couriering both coaches. So I jumped, I was on the coach, first of all, saying, yeah, you can go here. This is where the chocolate shop is. This is where you find lace. This is the Church of the Holy Blood. I was sending everybody everywhere. And I said, meet back here at the coach at four o'clock. Yeah. I said, so off you go. And I'm just going to tell the next coach the same thing. So I go on the coach. And I said, you find the chocolates and the lace and the Holy Blood. Back here at four o'clock. But I'd said to both of them, if you want to, I'm going anyway, if you want to follow me, that's fine. And I had a hundred women <laughs> snaking after me all the way through Bush because they were all a bit fearful to go off on their own. I mean, a lot of these women, remember, had never left the country. Right. A lot of them hadn't left room. <laughs> so right. it was a big adventure for a lot yeah. of people. Um, far too nervous to go shopping on their own. But well, eventually, funny. after the 10, 15 years, yeah. of course, they were all shooting all over the place. Everyone yeah, right. had so much confidence to do it. It's wonderful. So you facilitated quite quite a bit more then, really, haven't you, than just taking some people. You've opened up a world for many people. Yeah, I think you? in the early days it did that. Yeah, yeah that's I think amazing. It did. it did. Facilitator of fun. Facilitator yeah. of fun, yeah. yes. Um, I think I was, I was sort of laughing then because you said that they were sort of nervous in Bruges. And of... of of the places I've been um, lucky enough to have business to visit, mm. um, I was in Bruges last year with an ex-girlfriend. And it's the safest place in the, in the world, really, isn't it? Oh, it's wonderful. Uh, and it's, uh, it just sort of seems a little bit silly to me that someone would be, like, scared <laughs> because it's, um, it's, it's almost like a little toy town, isn't it? <laughs> There's it's no exactly threat there that. at all. Exactly that. Um, but then if you've never been abroad, you know? It's right, like, yeah, yeah, no, I can, yeah, I can understand yeah. that. But it's, Especially watching people eating chips with mayonnaise. What are they doing? <laughs> <laughs> I remember um, <laughs> uh, we did, it was quite hot when, when I went to um, mm. in, in Bruges last year. And uh, all we were doing was drinking Duval oh, or Lefe. And wow. uh, I was trying to be quite good and, and have a, some water mm-hmm. uh, periodically, mm-hmm. not go too hard, not sort of, you know, ruin the thing. And my girlfriend at the time, she does too much sun, not enough water, All right, too okay. much booze. She ended up getting this like crazy migraine uh, <laughs> thing in the, in the night. And mm-hmm. we were staying by this, there's a river near the, well, yes. there's a river. Yeah, yeah. We were staying in a, in a, like a three story house things okay. but we were in a B- airbnb so they had a two-story thing it was like a lofty sort of thing and uh we couldn't really have the windows open because it was next to this river and there's these mosquitoes coming in i remember i had like bites on my thumbs and Ooh. stuff we had this fan on and anyway it was just uncomfortably hot and mm. humid and she had this he- headache and we didn't have any paracetamol or anything it wasn't going away. It got to the point where I was getting quite sort of worried about her, really, because mm. she was like writhing in pain. Like, no amount of water was really helping. And it got to about three in the morning. I thought, right, I'm gonna have to go out and find some medication, right? And so I looked on my phone, I looked at the maps thing, and I saw that there was like a shell garage and it said open. Okay, I was like, great, this is where I'm gonna get mm. the paracetamol and I might get some sleep tonight. 
<laughs> and, uh, Being the selfless soul that yes, you are. <laughs> yeah, absolutely selfless. <laughs> and so I headed out in Bruges at th- about three in the morning to this thing, and there was not a soul about. It was the quietest wow. place. No one about. The street was completely mm. empty. There was um, a student party happening, which I sort of wanted to shout up to the window <laughs> because they were sort of hanging out having right. a fag. I sort of wanted to join them, but I had a mission. Um, <laughs> and that was about as noisy as it got. When I got to this shell, it was very eerie because there's just nothing going on. Yeah. No yeah. no cars, hardly. Um, and I got, to, I got to this shell garage and it was open, but it, the pumps were open. So Google told oh, me, no, so there was no, no. shop open. Oh. I was like, oh my God. And there was these fellas up on a balcony, two two chaps having uh, had some music on it, smoking, having a drink. And I thought, well, you know, perhaps their English is quite good because in Europe, most people's English is fairly good. And I was trying to explain to them. I was like, I was trying to explain, my girlfriend's got this headache, really bad. I can't find any paracetamol or medication, was thinking hopefully, you know, they'd go, oh, paracetamol's yeah. cheap. Like here, it's like 50p a pack or something, isn't mm. it? It's much cheaper than you think. And I thought, oh, maybe they just chucked me a pack and like, thank you, thank you, thank you. And they just didn't understand what I was saying. Oh, and they were like, oh, oh, we no. don't know what you're saying. Um, maybe uh, call her an ambulance. <laughs> and I was like, thanks very much, boys. Have a lovely evening. Oh, yeah, so go by. I hope oh, she's no. fine. And I sort of left and I had to I had to come back to this Airbnb empty-handed. Oh my gosh. And then I realized in the morning that you can only get this stuff from a pharmacy. You can't buy it in a you shop. You can't buy it in a shop. Oh gosh. so I went to the pharmacy, 19 euros for a pack of um what? Paracetamol. Yeah, because they only did them in this big box. Oh right. Okay. Absolutely fleeced. There you go. There's my wild rock and roll <laughs> bruise story for you. Call her an ambulance. <laughs> See you boys, whatever. Oh, I love, I love <laughs> the that. Only souls. The only souls. Oh, uh, they, they had didn't no know. idea what was going they on. They didn't know. Actually, yeah. there's there is nothing scarier than not being able to communicate with people, is it? Yeah. You know, I had the the one time that happened to me. Uh, it was not very long ago, actually. Four years, I suppose, something like that. Because um, I used to go off every October, November time and take these three-day city breaks. Yeah. Love it. Done quite a few, and I thought, oh, I'm going to go to St. Petersburg. Never been to Russia, I'm going to go. Right. So I booked myself a set-up for three days. And, of course, you can't take any Russian money into the country. Right. So I thought, oh, if I pre-book everything, I'm fine. So the first night I pre-booked this sort of um, Slavic dancing and merriment, what have you, <laughs> um, and a couple of other things I was going to do there. And I arrived at my hotel. It was up four flights of the dingiest place I've ever stayed, I think. Everything yeah. was brown. Yeah. Um, but I, I arrived at about 6 o'clock in the evening, knowing I was going to be picked up... Oh, about 5 o'clock in the evening, knowing I was going to be picked up at 6 by the coach. So I quickly shoved my stuff up to the room and came back down. The coach didn't come. Right. So I said to the... After about quarter past 7, I said, God, what do I do? And she had broken English, but she understood. She said, I'll, I'll ring the company. So she rang the company and discovered the coach had forgotten to come pick me up, but it was way out of town by now right. and gone off to this venue to drop people off. It was about half an hour away, I think, something like that. And I said, so what do I do? She said, well, you, would you like me to call you a taxi? 
And I said, that's fine, but I have no money on me until tomorrow. I've got no rubles because I can't get to the bank until right. the morning. Don't worry. She said, we'll pay for the taxi. And I said, oh, that's lovely. Thank you so much. But how do I get home? No, don't worry. We'll send him back for you to bring you home at 9.30. Right. So I thought, oh, this is wonderful hospitality. I'm sorted. So off I went to my thing. And I came out at 9.15, no taxi. Oh. <laughs> I was in the middle of St. Petersburg. Yeah. Traffic everywhere, huge streets. I was right on the corner of the street. And I thought, oh, I'll wait. I'll just wait. He's probably a bit late. <laughs> no, he didn't come. And eventually I started to panic. It was about 10 o'clock, quarter past 10, mm. no sign of a taxi. Traffic hurtling by, no cabs. You can't hail a cab over there. Right. I ended up, Stopping people saying, excuse me, do you speak English? When they just stared a bit blankly <laughs> yeah. at me. <laughs> no. And eventually I found a young girl who said, I tried to explain to her, she had broken English, tried to explain this, what the score was. She was very good and rang the hotel for me but couldn't make any sense of it, so gave me the phone with a very despairing look on her face. I'm sorry. Yeah. So I said, okay, don't worry. And I just wasn't sure what to do because I thought, well, where do I go from here now? I, I don't know where I am. Yeah. In Russia. <laughs> I'm half an hour from, away from my hotel. I couldn't even remember the name of my hotel, to be honest. I had right. no money, no way of getting home, no way of contacting anybody. And my phone was starting to run out of battery. Right. So uh, eventually I collared it. It was about quarter to 11 by then. I thought, I'm going to get arrested if I'm not careful. Quarter to 11, I met a young lad coming up from the subway. And I said, do you speak English? And he said, a little bit. <laughs> so <laughs> I told him the story. And he rang the hotel and he said, no, nobody knows anything about this arrangement of the hotel. And I said, well, the lady that speaks English. And he, when he asked, she'd left about two hours earlier, <laughs> gone off shift. So nobody, she hadn't passed on the message. Nobody knew anything about right. it. Stuck. And I said, well, what do I do? Because I've got no money. He said, don't worry, I've got a friend who runs a taxi company and I'll pay for your taxi. Right. So he called him and I went. I thought it was um, just, it just... It goes back to my thing about saying, if you have trust in people, they'll come good. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. I was there in the middle of a wild country, not knowing where I was, who I was. Yeah. But I got home. And it always it always works. That's amazing. It's a good mantra, isn't it? Mm. If you give people the confidence, if you show them confidence, mm -hmm. you have confidence in them and yeah. their integrity. Yeah. They're not going to want to ruin that. Absolutely. Because that feels, everyone feels terrible if you yeah. let someone down. Yeah. Most people do. Yeah. So trust begets trust. Yeah, it does. Yeah, you're um, absolutely right. That's beautiful. Mm. I guess, as we've been nattering for a while now, we should start talking about uh, how you've managed to find yourself as the mayor of Froome oh, after right. this okay. great yeah. saga. Mm. So we've got the independence for Froome scene here in mm -hmm. uh, in our town, which is where the party politics were sort of given the boot. Mm -hmm. uh, how long ago now? It's all the better part oh, of 12 20, years. Yeah. 12. Oh, 10 years now, it'll be winter. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and so now there is an independent town council. There's mm -hmm. no party politics. And we are both independent town councillors. Yeah. Uh, and as I said, it's loving the, it. Yes, it's great. As I said at the beginning of the podcast, I'm your deputy mayor. You are the mayor of the mm -hmm. town. Um, what, what was the. Uh, this is having heard a lot of your story. Um, I'm sure this is only a fraction of your <laughs> your, your life that I've, I've been treated to, but I, this is this feels 
very you actually i kind of it's just mm-hmm. understand this now that mm-hmm. this was just the next logical thing yeah. for you to do so tell me about the sort of the genesis of your your journey into local politics because i know you're with fair housing for Froome, which yeah. i guess we need to talk about as well yeah um so yeah how does this begin well i think i, I think really all the time the children were growing up i was very involved in the community in one way or another. Mm. I mean, I, I was a governor at the college. I was uh, worked on the PCA, chair of the PCA for a couple of years. Um, I, I was a, on the SCAC committee, the Keep Fit committee, you name it. I wanted to be involved in all these community things. I worked as a tr- chair of trustees for Positive Action on Cancer for 12 years. So always had a finger and lots of pies in the town. Always fascinated by what went on in the town. And I've always loved what the town has to offer. Um, in fact, often when I was visiting people away, they'd say to me, oh, God, are you paid by the council or something to talk about for you? <laughs> because <laughs> I was so enamoured by what there is here. And I used to get very frustrated by people that said, oh, Froome, nothing to do. And I remember shrieking, saying, look, you've just got to look behind the streets, look behind the, the houses, just look a little bit deeper. Every club you want, every group you want to join, every arts venue, there's music, everything's here. Yeah. And I couldn't get people to see it. I was so frustrated by that. Um, and I suppose because I've had that background there, there was an opportunity that arose uh, a couple of years ago when a friend of mine, Rosie Elliott, who was actually married to one of our previous mayors. Yes, shout um, out Rosie and Toby Elliott. Yeah, and Rosie runs a thing called Engaging Women. Yes, I've heard which, of this. Which is very much about trying to encourage more women to have a voice in local politics and well, anywhere, basically. And she said, come along, why don't you come along? So I was quite intrigued by it. When I went along, there were two lady councillors there who were chatting about their life and what they did. And that was, um, uh, it was Sheila Gore and Pippa Goldfinger who were talking. And I remember coming away thinking, wow, those women are quite amazing. You know, they, the job they do, I could feel the passion they had for the yeah. work they did. And Rosie said to me, just, what did you think? I said, well, I'm absolutely blown away and I'm quite intrigued and I think I might look into it. She said, good, because people are looking for candidates for the election, so yeah. get in there, girl. So I did. I put my name up and, and like you, we went along to all the um, the interviews and things like that to get selected and then we had to do the big campaigning to go. Um, but, yeah, I've been. it's been like a wonderful a constant roller coaster of what's next, what's next, you know. Yeah. Because there's so much to do. And I think when you get underneath what's going on in the council, you start to realise how much goes on in this town. Yeah. How much people do and how much people have a passion to make it a good place to live, you yeah. know. And it, that sweeps you away. You can get so easily carried away on it. It's wonderful. Yeah. So I, I I can go a bit over the top about it, really, sometimes. No, no, it's good. It's passionate. Um, did you feel the, the inner compass there with that when you when you walked away from that? I just knew there was something coming. Yeah. I, but it may be because I'd retired from Virgin right. um, eight years previously. I'd travelled, as I said, 10, 12 holidays a year you know, for eight years. 
I, I think I was getting to the stage where I thought, I, was, I, I need something different now. I need a challenge back in my life. Yeah. Because holidaying is fun. It's great. Yeah. Um, and I'm not going to say what it's boring at all. What are you holidaying from at that but point? But I wasn't getting any... <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't getting the stimulus. I wasn't being stretched. Yes. Which is what I love. I love to be stretched and to learn. Um, and, of course, feeling that this was coming up, this just suddenly started... All the little pieces started to fall into place. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And you knew and it, it was sense. right. Yeah. And um, but you know what Rosie's words were? Yeah. When I left that meeting, she said, "Great, go for it. This you need to stand for election, and if you get in, go for mayor. You'll love it." <laughs> oh, those are Rosie's words. Yeah. Um, I remember uh, when um, when we were at the corner house celebrating mm -hmm. our uh, election win. Um, uh, Rosie was there, and uh, I had my, uh, my ex girlfriend with me. Well, my girlfriend at the time, and uh, she said to, to her like, uh, "Ah, you'll uh, you'll never see him now. <laughs> He's gone." <laughs> it's interesting though, isn't it? Because I remember asking in the early days, "What's the time commitment here? What you know? What am I expected to give in terms of time?" Mm. And and they downplay it. Well, they do because two or three people <laughs> said to me, three, four meetings a month." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What? Yeah, I was told oh something similar. God. They totally downplay. No, no way. And I kind of knew instinctually. I was like, I think they're downplaying oh, this. Oh, dear, um, dear. Yeah. I mean, I don't think many days. I mean, I know being a mayor might put extra pressure on them, in a sense, in that you're expected to attend every meeting and those sorts of things. But even so, I mean, I, th I think it's very rare a day goes by without three meetings. Yeah. Really. A day. <laughs> uh, and a lot of those are evening meetings so it yeah. cuts into your social life yeah. um, but if you if you revel in it you know I think the thing is that once you get your teeth into something and you realise that you can chip away it's, nothing happens overnight yeah. but it's chip, chip, chip and gradually you can make a difference um, uh, and it's very easy then to get carried along with the enthusiasm of it all really and get rolled up into it mm. so you were you were deputy mayor to Mark Dorrington. Yes. How, yeah. uh, what did you learn from, from Mark that oh, you're now well, putting into place? I, from Mark, uh, Mark had the most extraordinary energy. I mean, he, <laughs> he wanted to be everywhere with everyone and never say no. And he did that. He was extraordinary yeah. in what he managed to achieve, really. Um, but he's a very, uh, he has huge integrity. Um, and he's a very honest man you know and he's the sort of man that everybody can relate to um he knows a lot of people he's genuinely loved around the town um and he's just solid you yeah. know a really nice guy um and he was very good to me he was like a mentor for me um and uh threw me a few chips now and then <laughs> to these things to go to and things to do. And he was away for a month while I wrote his column. And so I gradually cut my teeth on little things like that. Um, but when I was deputy mayor, you know, as you do, you're doing your own thing. Uh, I was finding my own way yeah. by introducing myself to various groups around the town saying, I'm deputy, can I come and talk to you? Can I come and say hello? And gradually I got involved in all the sheds around the town and lots of different things. So you make it your own, don't you? Whatever yeah. position like you are doing now, you make Trying. it your own. Yeah. yeah, doing a grand job, my lovely. <laughs> Thank you very much. Mm. Uh, and so you, where, where are we now? We are in December. We're in December. Christmas is around the corner. Yep. And uh, how long how long left have you got 
until well it, it'll be it's may, early may mm-hmm. isn't it so there's really another four or five months to go so it's a fair yeah. little bit isn't it when if you're mayor for little a bit, year yeah it's a fair little mm-hmm. little stint left um what are you looking forward to most which isn't um potentially handing the chains over to me and having a big long rest <laughs> <laughs> well there's, oh, there's so much stuff i mean uh, you mentioned fair housing for froom yes uh, I, i'm a director of fair housing for froom as well as being a councillor um and and we're really starting to make inroads into that now. Right. Um, we've, we've got a lot of new directors and um, starting to get involved in much bigger issues than we ever did before. So getting involved very closely with a housing needs survey that's coming up soon to find out, because one of the difficulties we've got around homelessness, I mean, we're, we're quite well off in Fruman that we don't have that many people sleeping on the streets, thank God. But I think we've probably got a huge problem under the surface um, with the sofa surfers and it's what they call the hidden homeless. And I think then, you know, there's an awful lot of work that needs to be done for these people. Some people are really struggling. Um, and we don't, we, we need to identify the problem. That's the first thing we need to do. But we're doing all we can at the moment in terms of being almost a signposting agency, if you like. Um, so... Uh, there's a Facebook page. We send out newsletters and blogs. We have our own website. So really talking to people about all the different people they can pull in mm. to help them if they're in a situation regarding potential homelessness or anything to do with renting or landlords or whatever. So we get involved in lots of those different groups. And we've also started this year taking a table out into the precincts and talking to people, gathering information. And we're going to be doing more of that. Boots on the ground work. Absolutely. And, you know, we're even going to be taking up a place on Froome FM, um, doing a bit of radio work. Um, awesome. To, yeah. So there's a lot we're expanding at quite a rate now, and I think it's getting bigger and bigger. So it's good. Um, so there's that to do. And I'm also very... I'm very keen to keep supporting the businesses. I mean, I think that's crucial. So many of these guys are struggling beyond belief. The resourcefulness they've shown, I think, is quite incredible, really, um, with some of the different things they've done with mail-order businesses or setting up diverse uh, things to sell, all sorts of things. Um, But, then, you know, they need help. They just need to know that somebody's out there, somebody cares, I suppose. Uh, And they need sometimes guidelines about where they can go for help. And, and of course, I love the neighbourhood thing. I've become quite involved in setting up all these neighbourhood groups around the town. Um, And, in fact, just put a sharing box on my own little bit of space, not far from me, Um, a community sharing box that people can share bits and pieces with each other. So what do you put in a sharing box? Is books? Anything, um, yeah. uh, Children's toys. I mean, I put gloves in there, packets of crisps, a bag of rice, (laughs) some Coca-Cola. Yeah, some uh, some walkers. (laughs) Children's games. Uh, I put a couple of recorders in there that were my kids when they were little. I mean, anything. Well, I hope you wipe the mouthpieces. We're in a pandemic. (laughs) (laughs) Anything goes. So, yeah, whatever you like. Brilliant. And you, you're enjoying it, you're reveling in it. Absolutely love it, Andy. And the, yeah. the chains don't, they're not, you know, what's, what's that What's that saying? Uh, heavy is the head that wears the crown. It's the opposite, is oh, it, with the chains of you? Yeah. I, I, the, you know, the thing I, I, I suppose really, there's a, the, there has to be a little bit of 
um, ego in here, doesn't there, really? But I love nothing more than putting on that chain and walking through the town. Yeah. I absolutely love it. And it's it gives me such a high when people just put their hand up or come up and say, oh, are you the mayor? Yeah. Can we talk about this? Can we talk about that? Yeah. I, and I revel in that. And in a way, it's being a... F uh, I like to feel I'm a conduit for people to make their views heard or something I can take back. Uh, and lovely that people feel able to come up and do that. Yeah. So it's amazing how much reverence there still is in this modern, busy age where everyone is their own star online. Yeah. Um, yeah. For uh, a title like the mayor. Um, and uh, yeah, it's um, been quite crazy the, the amount of sort of respect or reverence that you become, um, the, you know, reciprocal. Uh, yeah you receive sorry um when you've when you've got these titles it really was yeah. it really never it never ceases to sort of take me back it's quite humbling well you feel it now as deputy mayor i know you do because you've done some phenomenal work out there and i i know people have hold you in huge respect for the things you do but you wait <laughs> <laughs> you it just gets bigger and better okay. yeah so i guess like maybe we should wrap this up with a uh with a question which could be um what advice let's say so i i'm not guaranteed to be the mayor next year so that would be it's that, not a guarantee it's not a guarantee but i've got a foot a shoe in maybe <laughs> yeah um i wouldn't like to proclaim i'm going to be um just on the off chance that i, w I won't be but um it's looking likely mm -hmm. um what is your what would you be your advice to me uh what what's what would you tell me now on this podcast that you might take me aside and say you know in the in the corridors of power in may <laughs> I think the only thing I would say to you is what I would say to you, whether you were going for mayor or anything else in life, yeah. just be you. Yeah. If you can stay authentic, if you can just be you, you'll fly. <laughs> you'll fly. <laughs> well, thank you. Thanks for being such a good mentor as well so far. Oh. Um, it's, for, it's, it's really mutual. Been, um, it's mutual, Andy. Thank mm. you. Uh, it's really been so amazing since joining the council. It's just like the 17 other counsellors and when we have meetings and stuff it's like you know i never feel like the smartest person in the room or or um i'm all like i'm always inspired and you know it's just it's just the greatest and me yeah <laughs> yeah it's just the, yeah. the greatest thing to be surrounded by so many brilliant people so many brilliant minds but and we, we are living and learning every day aren't we yeah. we're learning from each other that's what that's the beauty of this is that i think you know um I suppose it's, there's an old saying, isn't there? That, you know, if you try and teach an elephant how to fish, he's going to think all his life that he's stupid. <laughs> but, um, because when you go into something like this and you know nothing, yeah. you, you, you're floundering, aren't you? you just yeah. got no idea. But gradually you have to take on bits and pieces, listening to all these guys that really have a clue about what they're doing. Yeah. Um, but love, so lovely to be part of it and to learn from all these people. I love it. Thank you so much to Mayor Collier for being our guest this week on The Giant Pod. I had such a great time uh, hanging out. Actually, after we did that podcast, we spent about four hours uh, drinking and listening to um, opera. <laughs> 
if you want to check out some of Anita's uh, mayor's columns and other mayor-related things, uh, you can check them out in the show note descriptions. Please like, subscribe, leave a review. It really does help. If you want to help this podcast grow, if you want to help us tell these stories, please just tell a friend, share the link online somewhere. If you want to follow my antics on Instagram, it's Andy underscore S1S, and you can follow the giant pod on Instagram and Twitter at at the giant pod. This was produced by the Honourable Harry Williams. Thank you so much for listening. I really loved this one, and I will see you next week for another belting giant pod. Thanks so much. <laughs>